Hello and welcome back to COM 2110, Sports Media and Communication. And in this lecture, we're going to go over crisis communication, specifically within sports. So before we actually get into sports crises, we need to define a few things, including what crisis is, as well as stakeholders and a couple other things. Um, and then we'll get into what types of questions different people will ask during a crisis both from the journalist side of things and from sort of the organizational side of things. And then we'll finish it up with a brief introduction to uh, image restoration approaches, which the next lecture will delve into quite a bit. So I'll be using the term stakeholder a few times in this lecture and perhaps moving forward as well. So before we actually talk about what a crisis is, let's define what a stakeholder is so that you all know what I'm talking about. So according to the book, a stakeholder is any group or individual who can affect or is affected by the achievement of a corporation's purpose. That sounds kind of vague, kind of organizational nonsense. It's basically just anyone that's affected by or can affect an organization or an entity might be a, a broader term that would work better for sports because in sports, a crisis could be an individual player, it could be a team, it could be an organization, it could be, you know, a sports media broadcasting company. Any of those could be something that could be considered in a crisis. So we'll just call them all entities. So stakeholder is anyone that's affected by or can affect an entity. Okay. And among stakeholders, there's two different types, internal stakeholders and external stakeholders. So internal stakeholders are any people within the focal system, as the book calls it. Remember systems theory? So anyone within the focal system, basically anyone within the company or the entity. So what does that actually mean in, in practice? Um, let's use an example of food poisoning at a restaurant. It's a pretty simple one. A lot of people have worked at restaurants, could probably relate to this in some capacity. Maybe you've had to do some uh, food safety training before if you did work at a restaurant. So when a restaurant owner or say the manager hears that someone got food poisoning and the health inspector traces it back to that restaurant, who then internally at the restaurant would need to know about their potentially being food poisoning coming from the restaurant? Well, probably the cooks, the people in the kitchen that are making the food, they probably need to know about that, right? Make sure they're washing their hands and whatnot. Um, you'd probably also need to uh, talk to the servers who handle the food. Uh, if you have alcohol, maybe you need to talk to the bartenders. Basically, any of the employees at the restaurant, you're going to want to tell them that there is an issue with food poisoning, right? If it's a, a chain restaurant, maybe you need to tell some of the higher-ups at the corporation that there is an issue so that they can start preparing a statement, that sort of thing. So those are all people internally uh, inside the focal system that need to know or are affected by or can affect the restaurant, right? External stakeholders are people outside of that focal system, logically. Um, for a restaurant, that could be anyone outside of employees, pretty much, that need to know about food poisoning potentially coming from the restaurant. So the logical one would be other customers that may have eaten in the past week as well, right? You want to make sure that they know that there is an issue of food poisoning because perhaps they're showing symptoms too. This would be a way for them to know what that is from. Um, 
sort of related to that, you'd probably want to let local hospitals know that anyone coming in could potentially have whatever foodborne illness it is, because that way, if they're showing those symptoms, they know pretty much right away what to treat. Or, you know, if it was um, a situation where a lot of people are getting sick, you can let the hospitals know that they might need to have a few more people there in order to accommodate for additional people coming into the ER or something like that. Or maybe you need to let the suppliers know, because sometimes foodborne illnesses don't come from preparation. They come from the actual food that you were getting. Right. So maybe it's like a batch of the chicken that you ordered actually has salmonella in it. Right. So you need to talk to suppliers and let them know and try to figure out if perhaps it came from them, because, you know, it could be a larger thing. And more other restaurants got, um, you know, the same batch of chicken from that same supplier. So they need to sort of um, cut it off at the head, try to um, mitigate some of those issues. So all of those people, all of those groups of people are affected by or can affect the restaurant, right? Internal and state and external stakeholders, right? All of those people are important um, and need to be communicated with in a crisis like food poisoning. And so that's basically what stakeholder theory says, okay? It says that during a crisis, there are multiple stakeholders that likely need to receive different messages, Okay. And that's really important is the idea of different messages, right? Um, what you talk to the suppliers about is probably different than what you're going to talk to the customers about. Customers probably don't care about the batch number of the you know, box of chicken that you have at your restaurant. Customers are probably more interested in what the symptoms are that they might be experiencing when it comes to food poisoning, right? And so all internal and external audiences need to be considered and appropriate messages created and disseminated. So when it comes to crisis, stakeholder theories, essentially, you need to figure out all of the people that are affected by this or could have affected this situation. And you need to figure out how to communicate with each of them effectively to try to mitigate the crisis. So if we're going to talk about crisis communication and responding to crises, uh, we got to get some more formal definitions for these things as well. Okay. So the first is a crisis and a crisis is simply a situation or occurrence that is threatening or could threaten to harm people or property. It could seriously damage operations. It could damage reputation with key stakeholders and, or it could negatively affect the bottom line could be one of those things, could be multiple of those, okay? And there's a bunch of different kinds of crises, uh, but in general, there's three different types. So the first type of crisis is operational. So when something like American Airlines has to cancel flights, a whole bunch of flights because they don't have enough workers for the planes. Or when a restaurant unexpectedly has a freezer break, so all their food potentially will spoil. If you've ever seen the bear, you know how they responded to that type of situation. But these are just sort of like in the everyday daily operations, something happens that needs to be responded to because it could affect a bunch of people. Pretty simple. Operational. Uh, second is a natural disaster, uh, an act of God, something like a tropical storm, tornado, those types of things. Um no one's at fault, but there's situations where a lot of people are affected and a lot of different groups of people need to respond to the situation. And then third 
probably most often and also most oftenly thought about when we think of companies or organizations or sports entities uh, having a crisis is self-inflicted crisis. This is when uh, it's an issue um, where organizations or people bring it upon themselves. And we'll get to a couple of examples of that later on. Um, but again, you probably have uh, an example or two in your head and sort of what that is. And then there's a couple that don't really fit neatly into these three types of crises. Uh, and I would say these have become more of a thing lately because of social media. Okay. So the first is rumors and the second is a challenge. All right. So a rumor type of crisis, um, it's basically when a rumor gets started and it gets to the point where someone has to respond to it. Uh, a good example in sports a couple of years ago is the DeAndre Swift incident. So on a fantasy football um, subreddit online on the forum there, um, someone posted, you know, essentially, I know a guy who knows a guy who works in the Philadelphia Police Department, and he said that uh, DeAndre Swift, the running back for the Lions, was being implicated in a murder. Like, it, it was a serious thing, okay? But it was just some dude on the internet that basically said this, right? But it got to the point, because so many people sort of picked things up on the internet and amplified this message, that the Lions had to respond to it. The beat writers for the Lions were asking about the situation to the point where, finally, the Philadelphia Police Department came out and said, as of now, he is not a suspect in this murder case. So um, it was completely unfounded. Nothing has come of it since. And it was just based on a rumor. So that's one type of crisis that doesn't really fit into the other three types that has become more of a thing because of social media. The other is called challenge, as I said. Um, an example would be something like um, sort of some of the hashtags or like uh, you could even sort of consider cancel culture in this. You know, if someone says something and then, you know, back before social media, nothing really would have come of it. But now we have social media and people have taken videos of someone saying something and a bunch of people start talking about how terrible what this person said was and that gets amplified and then a whole bunch of people um you know call for that person's employer to fire them or something like that um it could be something like uh chick-fil-a when it came out um where the owner talked about being anti-gay marriage um a lot of people online were very upset about that um and sort of boycotting Chick-fil-A. So any of the hashtag boycott, whatever, that would be a challenge. Um, something else that is a challenge as well, that is partially social media and part just sort of almost traditional media, is the Blackfish documentary, if you're familiar with that, about SeaWorld and sort of the really terrible treatment of the whales, the killer whales at SeaWorld. Um, that aired on Sundance, or it premiered at Sundance and then aired on CNN after that. And when it aired on CNN, um, there was a lot of backlash to that, and SeaWorld had to actually respond due to the airing of this documentary on CNN. Right? So those are, I guess we'll call it five different types of crisis, three traditional and two based more on social media. So the two based on social media, um, or have become more of a thing because of social media again, are rumors and challenges. 
So let's get a little bit more granular. Um, instead of simply what a crisis is, let's talk about what a sports crisis is. And the book outlines three different aspects of what a sports crisis might entail. Okay. So the first is that it has to be something that's not a common occurrence. So it can't be, you know, losing a game or a player getting injured. That's more or less stuff that happens all the time in the course of a season in any sport, right? A star player's ankle injury is not a crisis, generally. Um, but again, not a common occurrence. You could probably think of a couple of instances that, um, you know, injuries that were so bad where people did have to respond and it sort of became kind of a crisis, right? Secondly, uh, it must affect stakeholder perceptions of an athlete, team, or sports organization. So this is generally referring to um, like actual image or reputation. Uh, the book also calls it legitimacy. Um, not simply, you know, oh, this team sucks. I hate watching this team. They lose all the time. It's more of like, I don't want to be associated with this team anymore because it's done X, Y, and Z. Okay. And then finally, it must require efficient communication to reduce the damage related to the event. So the organization or player or whoever it is, they actually need to communicate in order to repair the damage that the crisis has caused. If something is internal, organizations will probably try to do their best to keep it that way um, so that it doesn't become a crisis. You know, when it comes to, say, uh, the Boston Celtics and their former coach, Imeo Doka, um, where there were certain things that happened within the organization and they ended up suspending him for a year. If it turned out that um, the Celtics investigated that and the coach, they found out that he did absolutely nothing wrong, there'd be no reason to suspend him and no reason to bother telling anyone in the public, right? They did the investigation and as a result of the investigation had to respond by suspending him and then putting out a statement saying that he violated, uh, you know, team policy um, and that he was being suspended, right? It only becomes a crisis when they need to respond to something. So now that we have definitions of crisis and sports crisis, let's actually talk about what crisis communication is. So crisis communication is an aspect of public relations that's related to how organizations engage internal and external stakeholders during the crisis basically trying to mitigate damage to the company's uh, or the entity's reputation by third-party sources, right? You're trying to prevent or lessen the damage that a crisis can inflict on your entity, on your team, on your organization. And this is sort of the inverse of traditional public relations. So what do you think I mean by that? If traditional public relations is trying to get as much attention as possible or increase the reputation of a company by highlighting the good work they do or the brand or the insights, whatever, why is crisis communication the inverse of that? Well, traditional PR means trying to get as much positive attention as possible. Crisis communication, on the other hand, is trying to reduce negative attention as much as possible, right? So, PR is increasing positive attention, crisis communication is decreasing negative attention, right? And so, based on that, those two different things require different skills um, when it comes to communicating. Um, think of like putting a fire out on your brand would be like trying to um, respond to a crisis. So, something happened and now your brand that you've crafted really strategically and um, put out there, it's lit on fire. 
If that happens, you can't really rely on the same skill set necessarily. Think of like building a house or some sort of structure. That requires a different skill set than putting out a fire on that same house or structure, right? Carpenters are not firefighters. So requires a different set of skills than traditional public relations. And probably even more important than responding to a crisis is actually being prepared for a crisis. The best way to put out a fire on your brand is to make sure that the fire never gets started in the first place. Okay, so a crisis communication plan serves to direct an organization's members about how to proceed after a crisis has occurred, because processing and sharing information are critical to managing crises and communications, both internally and externally, is usually the focus of these plans, you know, talking to the people that you need to talk to. So on the screen, we have a piece from the NBA bubbles rules um, for when they were doing the bubble down in Florida during the COVID, where they basically had it was like hundreds of pages of rules and policies and planning every little detail to try to maximize the chances of success or minimize the chances of people getting COVID. Right. And so they had all of these different rules and policies in place to try to make sure that people getting COVID or that would potentially be a crisis that it didn't happen. So they planned for it in advance. Um, and I'll bet you all of you have been part of a crisis communication plan before in your life. If you've ever done a fire drill in school, that's part of the plan that they have in place for if there's a fire in the school. You're not doing that just for the fun of it to get outside for a couple minutes. It's a plan to make sure that everyone knows exactly what they're supposed to do in the event that a fire occurs. So you're trying to plan for it because that will help mitigate the issue of fire if it ever actually did occur. And so just to reiterate, I have an entire slide just devoted to this point of crisis preparation. And if you're watching, you can see the fancy graphic that I put on the screen. If not, I will just read it out loud. And that is that the best response to a crisis is to be fully prepared for the crisis. Okay, the best response to a crisis is to be fully prepared for the crisis, because that means when the crisis does occur, if it occurs, you'll be more prepared to handle it and it doesn't become more of a crisis. And you'll see what I mean by that with the example that we'll use in the next lecture. So now that we've talked about preparing for the crisis itself, let's talk about a different thing that you can actually prepare for when crises do occur. So just like if you get pulled over by a police officer and come up to the window, knock on the window, you roll it down. First thing you're going to ask is, do you know why I pulled you over? You can prepare for that because you know that it's coming. In the same way, there are predictable questions that journalists are going to ask during a crisis. So ideally, you can try to answer all of these in a prepared statement before even getting asked questions. So we'll just list them. Um, I don't necessarily have to speak to each one, so I'll just say what each one is. Um, and if I feel like I need to expand a little bit, I will. But generally, um, I'm just going to list these and you can probably think, yeah, that's probably something that will be asked during during a crisis situation. The first is what happened. Obviously, they want to know the details of what actually happened. They also want to know how or why did this happen, right? Also, did you have any forewarning that the situation might or would happen, right? All of those are things trying to figure out 
why this occurred in the first place. Then we get into some things about the current situation. Who is in charge of fixing the situation? How is the situation being contained? What is being done to fix it? If there are victims, how are they being helped? Moving forward, what can we expect from you or the company or entity as the next steps in fixing the situation? What can the media be doing to help? Maybe you want them to help get the message out. If it's a natural disaster, the media can be pretty effective in helping spread the messages about where people can go to find help, right? Then finally, where can we, meaning the media and the public, go to find answers should we need them? Okay, those are all things that are going to be asked, and pretty much all of those, if you put out some sort of press release right when the situation happens, you can address all of those, and you should address each and every one of those when you put out that statement. Um, there's also questions that your crisis team needs to consider um, that go even further than that, and it's important that you go through these and come up with the answers that are as open and concise and transparent as you deem necessary for a particular crisis, okay? So obviously, what happened? We want to know exactly what happened. We also want to know how we know that it happened. When did it come to our attention? Who told us? All of those things. Also, who was responsible for it? Is it something that could have been prevented, right? Along the same lines, why did this situation happen? Also, who is affected and how are they being helped? Those are all things that you need to consider. Um, all the internal and external stakeholders. Are any of them affected? And if they are, how are they being helped? Who can we trust to get our side of the story out to the public? It's, this moves more into the media relations side of things, um, but in general, putting out a good press release will go far in sort of getting your story out there in the beginning. Um, and then the media relations people will really figure out who to then talk to moving forward. Speaking of, who needs to hear from us? Which stakeholders really need to hear from us and when do they need to hear from us by? And what should we say? Um, what does the public need to know? It could be a situation that there is an ongoing investigation. If that's the case, it's probably better to sort of leave it at, this is an open investigation, we shouldn't speak too much or anything like that. And also don't speculate. That would be a bad decision as well. Um, just stick to what you know, what the facts are, and what you can put out there at the present moment. And sort of related to that is how should we say it? You know, what do we know and how should we say it? And then finally, how can the media help us get our messages out there? Um, again, the media can be very effective when it comes to um, spreading your messages for you. You just need to make sure that you are tailoring your messages in a way where they are then going to give the public those messages in the same way or similar to how you said it so that your message is getting across the way that you want it to get across. Okay. So now with that information, you can easily respond to the next daily case, which is about the documentary training rules in which a crisis situation did occur. And not only that, you can talk about who created the crisis or where it came from. Um, you can even talk about what type of crisis it is. In fact, think back to the UNC scandal as well from uh, the daily case before that. For both of those, think about what type of crisis or what type of crises those are. 
Um, you can look through the notes that we just went over. Um, but yeah, think about that moving forward. So the last thing we'll talk about in this lecture is image restoration approaches. And this is basically when something happens, a crisis, for instance, and someone's reputation or their image is damaged. That usually happens during crisis, right? Someone's reputation takes a hit. These are all the different techniques that people use to try to restore that reputation or repair that image, image restoration approaches, image um, repairing, that sort of thing. And there's 15 on the screen. Um, we'll not go through all 15 in this lecture. We'll talk about some in the next lecture as well. Um, but make sure you know what each of these means from the textbook. They're each in the textbook. Um, and think of examples of each of these. Um, but again, these are all sort of the broad categories of ways that people respond to, um, you know, that hit that their reputation took. And so despite there being 15 of these image restoration approaches, um, and we'll cover more of these in the next lecture, uh, there are five generally that people recommend when it comes to responding to crisis, typically. Um, they fall under the accommodation approach broadly. There's five of them within this accommodation approach, okay? Um, so the first is called compensation, and that's pretty straightforward. If someone lost money or there are damages, you know, the company commits to making that up to people. Um, and it'll look better if they do it proactively versus uh, reactively or being forced to do it. Think of any class action lawsuit where, you know, a company gets sued and then they settle and then you get that email saying like, oh, um, you know, Meta did this and you could uh, qualify for getting $5 back or something. You sign up and like a million people get $5 back. Um, but again, it looks bad that the company was sort of forced to do that or had to get sued in order to compensate people for something they may have done. So it's better to do that proactively. It helps with restoring the image. Um, similar to that is corrective action. Uh, this is where changes are made to keep the crisis from happening or occurring again. Um, if you think of a natural disaster, sometimes after that occurs, uh, any new structures that are built are sort of done so in a way that um, when the same type of natural disaster occurs, maybe there won't be quite as much damage. Um, or if there was, say, uh, you know, hackers breached the security of some financial company and got a whole bunch of customers' information, uh, maybe moving forward, the company decides that they're going to use a different type of security to try to make sure that that doesn't happen again. That's corrective action. Uh, third is mortification. And this is basically trying to show that you're also mortified by what happened. Um, it can include uh, or sort of show that you have empathy for the victims. Um, this is where you say something like, I'm just as upset about this as you are, right? Trying to show that you understand that they're upset and you're just as upset and you want to get to the bottom of it too, that type of thing. Uh, there's two different types of apologies and only one falls within the best uh the, the recommended approaches, and that's the penitential apology compared to a causal apology. So a penitential apology is basically showing remorse for what happened, saying I'm sorry, and not offering any sort of explanation, okay? Causal apology, on the other hand, does offer an explanation of why you have to apologize. Um, think of it as like if you've ever had a friend apologize to you, maybe you did this too, um, where 
uh, they'll say like, I'm sorry you were offended by that, where they're not really apologizing. They're more like apologizing for you being offended. Right. So it's not the same thing. Um, I tend to think about this when it comes to anyone that had to apologize during the whole Me Too situation a few years ago. Um, right. The the um, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, sexual assault, all of those accusations that people came out from different um, from different celebrities. And often when some of these people were apologizing, if they did apologize, they chose a causal apology where they try to reason why what happened the way it did. Um, you know, instead of simply saying, I'm sorry, expressing remorse, they sort of tried to describe or explain away why the situation where they need to apologize, why that happened, right? And it kind of comes across less as an apology and more of an excuse. Um, and it does not come across very well, typically. Um, people that are victims in those situations aren't any happier after that type of that causal apology. So it's better to do the penitential apology, sort of expressing remorse and not offering any sort of explanation or anything like that. By the way, that that works really well in class as well. Um, and then finally, we have suffering. Uh, and this one, I would say, is less frequent or should be less frequent, probably isn't recommended as frequently. Um, it's where a company says that they're suffering just like the victims are. So um, the issue with this is that sometimes in certain types of crisis, this can come off as being tone deaf, right? That, oh, you caused a crisis, but you're also suffering too. Um, say in the Me Too situation, right, when they're apologizing if they did, um, where a man says that, you know, he's the victim of cancel culture because of what happened, whether or not you agree that they are or whatever, Doing so kind of comes off to those that are upset, like the person doesn't actually care about the victims or doesn't even realize why anyone's upset in the first place, right? Again, it's probably a good idea to be careful about using that approach. So speaking of being careful about using image restoration approaches, next class, next lecture, we will talk about the NFL and how they used image restoration when it came to a crisis that they self-inflicted. So I'll see you next time.